Okay, so welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. I'm delighted to have um, someone who I worked with very early on in my career, a very, very good football coach, uh, Michael Bill, good friend of mine from previous, and we haven't spoken in a, in a long time. Now is the uh, first team coach of Glasgow Rangers, previously Liverpool, Sao Paulo, and at Chelsea, where I met him. So Mick, thank you very much for coming on today, mate. No, a pleasure, Ross. It'd be great to come on, mate. Really looking forward to it. Just before we get into it, uh, just a quick word about our sponsors. So very, very delighted to have RIPT to sponsor us. RIPT are a software platform built for performance coaches and organizations with easy to use programming tools, training load, well-being and nutrition monitoring via the RIPT app. All your coaching tools are in one place. Streamlining your coaching, making it more accessible for your clients and athletes and providing you with insights for your uh, performance needs. To find out more, head over to www.ript.app. That's capital R-Y. IPT.app and use the uh, code locker room and you'll get two months free trial. Um, so please head over there and see what services that Cormac and lads are, are giving over there. Mick, I think we'll go, we'll go uh, from the start. I know you've probably done this a few times now, last year or so. Obviously I met you at Chelsea. There's a lot of history before that, but I didn't know you from, and you've kicked on from there. Do you want to explain your career from a playing perspective and then how you've gone into coaching, if that's right, mate? Yeah. I was a young player at Cholton. I went into Cholton probably as 10, 11 years of age and I stayed there all the way through to 19, just before my 20th birthday. Then knocked around a few different trials and things like that and sort of fell out of the game. Uh, I went across to America for a while, was at Russian Diamonds, uh, a few different trials and bounced around. And I was sort of a little bit out of love with the game, Ross, and, and didn't really know what I was going to do in my future. I thought I was going to be a player, I believed you know, going through my, my secondary education, that I was going to be a football player. And then obviously it didn't work out at, at the last moment. So for me, um, I was a bit of a loss what I was going to do for a career. And I started a little bit of money left over and I started a soccer school, uh, Brazilian soccer schools it was at the time, uh, futsal in a, in, a, in a local church hall, charging £4 a kid for the hours coaching. And I think I only had three kids turn up the first week and they're paying £32 for the hall. So I was at a loss straight away. But Six months later, that led to a job in the development centres at Chelsea. A guy called Damien Matthew invited me in to work with the six, sevens and eights. And after about three or four months, I was in assisting the under nines with the famous Bob Osborne. And from there, the next season, I took the under tens. And then I was a youth development officer, which my job was to recruit the best six to eight-year-olds. We had 32 coaches and 64 scouts across 10 development centres around London. And my job was to coordinate the coaching programme and identify the players after the scouts had brought them in to help make up the under-9s team. At the same time, I coached the under-10s for three or four years, uh, under-12s, under-13s, and then the three or four years at the under-14s. I did about 10 years in total at Chelsea, or nine and a half years. In 2012, obviously went to Liverpool to be head of 15-16s to take both teams. Um, after two months there, I was also uh, assistant reserve team manager and still doing the 15-16s. At the end of the next season, I became under-23s coach, it was termed then. Obviously, it's been changed a bit under 21s, 23s and B teams and did that for four years. And then in 2017, went across to Sao Paulo in Brazil as assistant manager. Come back at the end of 2017 to Liverpool as a head of coaching in the younger age groups, a bit like the job I'd done at Chelsea 10 years earlier. And then um, a year later, came here with Stephen and we've been here, this is the start of our full season now. So... I've done pretty much every age group, mate. When I was part-time at Chelsea as well, I did disability coaching. I worked in ladies football. I worked at Crystal Palace ladies and 
and Chelsea ladies going through my A licence. Back then, if you took a team that was in the FA Cup, whether it was the FA Women's Cup or the FA Men's Cup, it meant you could take your A licence. They had to get you on the course. So it was a great way for me to, to work in senior football at the same time I was doing kids. I did AFC Women and Youth Team when it was a college programme, when the club was on the way back, all the time while I was working part-time at Chelsea as well. So uh, it's been a varied pathway, mate. Probably, seeing as I've just turned 41, it's been 20 years now, mate. Fair play. Very extensive career that you managed to sum up very modestly there, Mick. Mick, I'm interested in your decision to go from Chelsea. Obviously, I knew you at uh, the back end of your career, last three or four years, you were mm. at Chelsea with the 14s. Like, do you look back at that moment and go, that was probably one of the pivotal defining moments in my career. I've gone up north, I've had to relocate family. Um, mm -hmm. Do you look back and think that's the, the one decision I took that really kicked me on? I think I've always took decisions. Like, when I started coaching at 21, like, I, I had a sort of a bet with myself. I was very... I was hurt still by not making it as a football player, you know, as a young kid, like a lot of young kids are. So I put that energy into coaching. And I said, actually, when I'm 40, I'm going to be somewhere and I'm going to knock every wall down. I want to be a manager. I want to be a Mourinho. Because Mourinho was my idol at the time. I'm a Chelsea fan. Um, in the back of my head, I had an anchor where if I could be a youth coach, because my youth coach, that youth coach uh, at Cholton, that job, I thought was like the dream coaching job. And at the time, I thought... That might be as far as I can get, Ross, if I'm honest. But I'd said to myself, I was going to knock down every wall. I wanted to go and coach abroad as well and learn a second language. All because I was fascinated by foreign football and that I didn't think English coaches were very well respected around the world. Um, so I had some really high aims. And what I said, I was going to knock down every boundary. Going to work at Chelsea was fantastic. As you know, and, and I know from our time there, every coach won every week. We always won because we had the best players. You know, that, that was fair to say. Um, and it was it was fantastic time for me, but it got to a stage where players weren't breaking through, and I just felt that I was probably not trusting so much in the process that I was before because we wasn't getting the players through, and I thought they were good players through no fault of anyone really, but we wasn't getting them through, and I just felt I needed to challenge myself a little bit. I wanted to find out if I was a good coach, and I wanted to find out if I could kick on further, and so you have to have an opportunity, and obviously like my opportunity to go to Liverpool and take the 15s, 16s was a unique opportunity. It's not like I was leaving to go down a couple of divisions. I was going to a huge club and I was going to the other side of the country and really challenging myself. And at the time, it was a big decision, Ross, because we just had a baby, six, six months old, and I was taking a significant pay cut to go to Liverpool at the time. And, um, and it's not easy to leave Chelsea because it's a fantastic place. I'm a Chelsea fan and the academy is very well run, but it was a big, big uh, moment. The first couple of months were difficult, but it's been proven to be a big decision. But most of the decisions I've made has been chasing something that I've decided when I was 21 that I was going to go and try and reach or take on the world, if you like, without using a cheesy term. Like, I was going to try and push the limits and see how far I could go. And I've never really felt um, uncomfortable in football. I've never really got to a stage where I felt uncomfortable coaching at a certain level or even in Brazil with a second language. So I need to keep searching for that. Otherwise, I feel as if I'm doing myself a disservice. And ultimately, uh, I think that's what it's about. It's you versus yourself. Not in a cold way. You obviously do the best for the club and the players you're working for. But I think you have to chase things yourself, certainly. Yeah, that's a great answer, Mick. How, um, you've obviously worked, as you said, with all the age groups across the board. How important is that? It's, it's a natural thing that people go, probably more to financially and aspirations, they want to be first team managers. But how important is it you spend time with that development squads, learning the processes of how to coach, how to develop players through different stages before you go to the top end? 
yeah, look, I love that I had the best of both worlds back in that first job at Chelsea, taking the under-14s where the boys were in the youth development phase. We never used to call it that back then, did we? All these fancy right. new departments that have come now. But I suppose back then I was head of the foundation phase and working in the youth development phase. And so I had a fantastic journey where I knew the boys and the parents at six or seven. And I've seen the boys like Mason Mount go all the way through and now representing their country in a major tournament. So I feel lucky that I've worked at every age of youth development. Obviously, it's given me a fantastic um, background and, and experience to put on now that I'm working at a senior level. But when I went back after being assistant manager at Sao Paulo to work at Liverpool and look after the six, sevens, eights, nines, tens, elevens, I had the best year, Ross, because back to the purity, still going back, talking about boys, twisting, turning, what's your back foot, what's your front foot, how do you play 2v1, but, but can you outplay 1v1, but always thinking of the second player, how can I use his movement, how can I use him to get past someone. All the little skills that you, you teach kids back there, and I love the way you can teach young kids how to use their body little wrestling matches, little arms off and, and things like using, teaching them how to use their body when they're young because that's when they're a sponge to everything. And you get to the senior level, there's a lot more collaborating going on, but it's a lot more hiding people's deficiencies, I think. And when you're working with young players, you have a chance to really push the boundaries of every player every day. Um, first team, sometimes a performance schedule gets in the way of development. I try to mirror the two. My experience has been perfect for me working, um, you know, the amount of years I did in foundation phase and the amount of years in the youth development phase. And then, you know, you get to Liverpool and now you're working in professional development phase, you're learning that. And now as a first team coach, looking back at academy kids, I think my advice to academy coaches is much stronger and my mentoring of young players is much stronger as well. You know, like we get into a stage where we think a 15-year-old's old all of a sudden. Where, where did we, you know, like, and a 17-year-old's got to be perfect compared to a 28-year-old first-team player. I think experience gives you that. And I think if you have people in your club speaking that way, I think, you know, knowing Chris Ramsey and, and some of the people in, in the club that you work as well, Ross, I think they would have very similar ideas as myself and also be calming people down a little bit. And I think that's what experience gives you. I never thought I'd be sat here as the experienced one when me and you were working together all them years ago, but we, we were lucky ones because we saw lots of good things, mate. For sure. Well, you touched on it there, but how rewarding both at Chelsea, Liverpool, clubs you've worked at to see these players now get into top flight football, get to the top stage and, and even mm -hmm. sit back and say, well, I worked that player for an X amount of years. I contributed to their development. How nice is that sometimes to look on match of the day and see it? Yeah, to see their journey, it makes you so proud. But they're, they're the biggest achievements for me as well when I see these boys playing and doing well. And, and it also, it helps you with the young players that you're working with now because you know that them boys weren't perfect at age. They went through growth spurts. They went through moments where they were in and out of the team. They went through moments with massive doubt or they were rejected. So you can pull on it with the next generation you're working with. But like, I'm so proud when I watch them boys. They're my biggest achievement when I watch them playing because you were just around them at the beginning when they might have been in a development centre at Chelsea or they might have been in the 13s, 14s at Liverpool like a Trent was or, or players like that. And it's fantastic to see them doing it. When I first started coaching and you'd meet coaches and they'd say they'd worked with players that were playing for England, you thought, wow, I'd love to just have a professional one day that I've worked with playing in the Premier League. And so it creeps up on you a little bit. You know, when you're watching the Euros this summer and you see them young boys playing, well, they're the young men now, they're not young boys. But obviously, uh, all I remember is back to some of the, the experience you had when you was young. It's important that you kept making them people smile when they were young, believing in themselves, training hard. 
um, because nothing was linear with any of the boys that we're seeing playing now. And you can name a few. And I went across to Brazil and worked with some really good talents there. Boy Militao, we looked at in our B team and took him out of the B team, give him a debut, sold him to Porto, and then Real Madrid paid 52 million for him a year later. And like so. You, you've seen, you, you're proud of all of them. You know, you, I even watch League One games and boys, you know, I was watching Bolton the other night and Dapo Afalayan was on the TV playing ever so well. He was playing in midfield, a boy called Jordan Williams, who we had at Liverpool as well. And so you seem to be able to pick up any game in the TV now and know a boy or, you know, know someone that knew a boy in his development. And that's the, that's the beauty of, of being in development for the 20 years that I've been. It's lovely now. For sure. And even you said the ups and downs and not leaning. Think about someone like Declan Rice, who at 14, you know, was let go, you know, and now mm -hmm. is on the international stage. It's brilliant to see you um, in these mm -hmm. players. I must talk to you a little bit more, Mick, about your time in, with Sao Paulo, South America. So you made the, the trip abroad to Liverpool, uh, up north to Liverpool. Decision then, opportunity come to go to Sao Paulo. What was that like culturally, um, moving family across? How did you find that working day to day? You were trying to learn the language, learning Spanish. Talk to us a little bit about your experiences there. Mm -hmm. First thing, it was, it was a really, really difficult decision to make because I was living in the best moment of my, my life um, off the pitch with a family. I had two young boys and we were settled in the Northwest. The club was amazing to me, Liverpool. It's such a special football club. Like, I'm a Chelsea fan, but I feel like Liverpool is my football home after the five years I had there. It was, it was amazing. We'd had 18 debuts in two and a half years under Brendan and Jurgen. So it, I, I felt really fulfilled in my job. And... The opportunity just came out of the blue. You know, the guy who took me there, uh, it was his first job as a manager. He played there for 24 years. He was a goalie, very famous player, Rogero Senna, very, very famous player. Um, and he came over and was watching all the best coaches in England, the managers, and someone who was with him said, oh, look, spend a day with, with Nick and he'll talk to you about development and stuff like that. And literally he did that. We had a 45-minute session because it was the day before a game and we spoke for two and a half hours over lunch and I showed him some things. And, when he left, he said, look, you know, when are you going to be a manager? And I said, well, look, I want to coach abroad, but I really want to go and broaden my horizons around cultures and stuff like that. It's what I'm really interested in, languages. And he said, oh, OK, I'll remember that. And then four weeks later, he rung me and offered me the job to go and be assistant manager. And so Liverpool re reluctantly agreed that I could go and view it. And then when I got to Sao Paulo and I saw the 75,000 seat stadium, the history of the club, you know, one of the biggest clubs in South America, if not the biggest. And then they took me to their academy and it was like taking, taking somewhere to someone like myself to paradise to see all these young Brazilian kids living there and the different shapes and sizes and the potential. And so I just thought I had to do it. Otherwise I'd regret it for the rest of my life. I'd been practicing sp Spanish for five or six years because my parents lived there, but I never spoke a word of Portuguese. And what I realized is the languages were really different. And so I spent 17 hours in one week, literally living in this guy in Topstiff's front room, this Brazilian guy who would tutor me because uh, it was just before Christmas. And then on 1st of January, 2017, I flew over to start pre-season. And from that moment, it was an, an amazing, amazing experience. It's an amazing experience to learn from the different cultures that were in the team, Brazilian, Uruguayan, Ecuadorian, Peruvian players top international players, top young players, young Brazilian nationals that have now gone on to play in the full national team. The travelling in Brazil, the culture, the way the people were, to play away to Santos in Pele's old stadium, to play Corinthians, Palmeiras, to go across in the Copa Sudamericana to play in Argentina. But just to represent this club, which was 
a club that was bigger than life for the people in the city. You know, Brazil's got massive poverty and uh, the difference between wealthy people and the rest of the population is huge. So the passion behind the football club was, was huge. And then learning a language every single day, training in the heat, training, you know, in different speeds and stuff like that. It was like the, it was like a five-star footballing holiday for seven or eight months. The difficult parts of it were, I'd been used to working at Chelsea and Liverpool, very established academies that had a philosophy in terms of development. And it was always about the bigger picture. It was my first time at first team football, where everyone thinks a little bit shorter term in every club around the world. But in Brazil, where there's financial issues in the clubs, they're always looking to sell their best young players. And, and we sold, I think, 11 of our better young players that were in and around our squad in, in the space of like three or four months. And I couldn't understand it. And it was difficult for me. And there was an issue with the family and the visas. So the club messed up the visas. So the family was there for not there for the first two months, come for 90 days and had to go home. And in the mix of everything with the buying and selling the players and me not really seeing vision in the project so much anymore and my family going home, I decided to resign. And I'm, I'm fine with the decision because it's led to where I am now. But at the time, it was a really difficult decision to make. But I made it on the principle that I didn't believe in the project where we were going, what the idea that I was sold. It wasn't the manager or the people that I worked with. They were fantastic. And you know, Rogério went on to work at Fortaleza, won four or five trophies. Then he went to be manager of Flamengo, which is a huge club, 32 million fans in Brazil. And he just won the national title last year there. So it, I, I was working with someone very good. And he allowed me to um, be the coach every day, plan all the sessions and then and really have an impact on him as a manager. So what an experience. But I would say to anyone else, if you get the opportunity to do it, and if I get the opportunity again in the future to go and work abroad, it's something that I'm desperate to do again. Sounds fascinating, mate. And in terms of the coaching, did you coach in English? Did you coach in Portuguese by the end? No, I coached in Portuguese. It was much easier. Like Speaking in Portuguese in football words is much easier than in your life off the pitch. And Portuguese and Spanish football words are very similar. So I knew some and you're there every day. I didn't mind you know, laughing at myself and getting things wrong. I had a translator, but it wasn't a pride thing. I just didn't think it came across well in terms of the delivery of communication. What I did learn is that I used to write the session plan out. And instead of writing like four times three minutes or 20 by 30 yards and the rules, this my session plans. I was thinking, why have I done that for all them years in England? Why have I written a session plan? Like it could just be photocopied and go in a book. The session plan, I should write a session plan for what I'm going to say to certain people. And that's what I did in Portuguese. So it, it would take me an hour and a half, two hours to write the session plan because I'd made sure if I wanted to say to a player, get your shoulders open or play forward or, or what I want from this practice is this, this and this and get the verbs right. I only had to get like two or three words from a pressing, weight, other side in terms of switch, 1v1, cross, shoot, you know, man on, things like that. I got them words very, very quickly. So I used to write on the session plan what I wanted to say to certain players. Then if you're doing it every single day, Ross, and you're living in it, you don't become fluent, but you become more confident. And the confidence is actually more important than I think than, than competence in most ways. You know, your confidence speak a second language. They will meet you halfway because they all wanted to learn English as well. Because the Brazilian yeah. players, fascinated by the Premier League, fascinated by Chelsea, fascinated by Liverpool, fascinated by Europe. So it's a bit like when you go on holiday and try and speak Spanish, so they help you to meet you halfway. And honestly, mate, I loved it. You can you can hear from the passion I've got about it. It was a wonderful time. 
the only thing is you, you're going through it on your own. So imagine if you're going through it with a management team or a few friends, you'd be able to share it. But I'm trying to ex- tell you about my experience, yeah, but it's yeah. hard because you have to live it. Do you know what I mean? But it was, it was fantastic. For sure. Um, really interesting. Was there a point where you wanted to say stuff in Portuguese, little details that you might have thought of in the session and you couldn't, so you had to switch back to English? A little bit, but then that's why the translator was there and the manager spoke quite good English as well. And yeah. so in our management team, everyone was practicing their English and I was trying to practice my Portuguese. <laughs> like three people trying to practice English with me. But no, I think I thought in the end I got there. The only this, this the really important part, of, I think, of coaching is the stuff off the pitch. So how you make a player feel going on it how he feels about his journey and how he feels about you helping him on his journey. I think for me, relationships are so, so important. So the one area that I probably couldn't tap into with all the players as much as I'd like is that one-to-one off the pitch. I could do it with some that could speak some English, but for me, that is coaching. That's much more important than the practices on the pitch, how the player arrives to it. Um, And so that's probably the one area that I didn't get to tap into as much in the eight months that I was there. Um, and but in terms of what I took from it, I came home fifty percent a better coach. Like you know, when I was at Liverpool and I was working with the first team and the manager that I work with now, you know, you're lucky enough to coach him or be in a session that he's in, Stephen. I was a bit in awe is probably the not, not the right word, but I wasn't a hundred percent myself before I went to Brazil. And then when I went to Brazil, I just had to, you know, I was so so concentrated on making sure I got the language right and not failing that. I sort of got overcome that. You know, I was working with Brazilian nationals and Argentinian nationals, but I overcome that because I was focusing on something else yeah. so so intensely. And then, so when I came home, that facade was gone. Then I felt at ease with whoever I was with. And it, so it took me to a, a completely different level and understanding cultures as well. Like at Chelsea, we worked with foreign players, young foreign players, very talented. At Liverpool, the same, but they were European mainly. Yeah. Then it was me, I was the foreigner going into another culture and I went to learn about South Americans. And I just found it fascinating. It's, it's helped me greatly. We've got a Colombian player here at Rangers and Ross, it's helped me understand him where others might not understand some of his behaviours. I've lived in East culture and so I'm much more understanding of that now, which has taken me to another level. For sure. I had the same thing in Qatar, Mick, very similar experiences. Has it, has it changed the way that you write session plans now? Are you much more, do you do that with the, with the Scottish guys and the English guys about what you want to say to them? Or, yeah, have you, yeah. so it's changed. Yeah, I think, also, I think also like it's changed the people that I work with now because I write the session plans for our staff here. And I did in Brazil, to be fair, photocopy, put it on everyone's desk and have a meet and talk about what we're going to do. So they'll see who the practice is for. You know, yeah. so the practice for this player and or these players and for this moment. And so it's changed. But I still, you know, uh, it's like the mad scientist in me. You go home, you take a session plan over, you just translate your session plan to Portuguese. And I've lost quite a lot of the Portuguese that I had because I've been home now four years. But for the first year or so of coming back, that was essential. And like, I'm, I'm obsessed, like most of us are in the game. And I'll be in the shower in the morning having a conversation with myself in Portuguese just to try and keep it because I want to use it again in the future like I love we obviously Alfredo here he's Colombian so it's Spanish the football words are very similar Um, and so I still try as much as I can but again Alfredo wants to speak to me in English and I want to speak to him in Spanish so it's that it's that lovely two-way mate 
Of course. No, it sounds like it's added a lot to your, your coaching style as well. Just moving on to the coaching side, Mick, in terms of your philosophy. I know this is quite an overall question, but could you summarise your overall philosophy? From a, I think a lot of it's come out about the player and how you manage the player, the journey to the thing. From a, a development perspective and also if that changes to senior, is there any little things you change yeah. at senior level? I think like, like little simple sayings can mean a lot. So you talk about occupying width and then searching for depth. So it doesn't matter who you play against because of the offside rule, whether they high press, come after you, or they wait or they drop off and wait for you, they can affect the length of the pitch. So whip's really important. So I love ball carriers. I love people that can play on the sides and eliminate 1v1. All over the pitch, I want people that can travel with the ball. I want people who've got action man hips who can twist and turn when people are on their back. So when you're a kid and your action man, the legs go round. I want that in players. I look for that in players. I look for players that want to carry the ball. I want players to lead in their own way. So then you've got to explain to a player how a number 10 leads in his own way. He's a technical leader. He comes and gets on the ball. You explain to someone else how he leads maybe a centre-half with his voice or just his personality and energy on the pitch. Everyone can lead in their own way. So for me, it goes back to when we were working with them young players at Chelsea 13, 14. My big thing then was expression, 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 linked to decision-making. The better the decision-making, the better the player. When do you want to bring certain decision-making in? I like some stability in the team, but I like a lot of rotation. And I like, I like the team to almost have hybrid formation, not a set formation, but it's always, all of, always about the players and always about the players enjoying the game and influencing the game in their own way. And, and I think that's the biggest thing we can do for young players. And I'm 41 now, so a 28-year-old's a young player to me, is to show them how they can influence the game positively. So a lot of players have talent. It's how they can implement their talent within the team. And I think that's it. That's why every team's different. You know, I'm not too up about, you know, what do you play 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1? You play what suits your players. You defend in a certain way and you attack in a different way. And one player being injured, another player coming in can change everything or just give you that lovely variety that you need. But for me, I speak a lot about um, the individual, like even when it comes to the team stuff, the individual, fuel the individual, how I set up the coaching team at the, the clubs that I've worked at in terms of having coaching lieutenants who look after five or six players in their units and have lunch with them, breakfast. It's always about fueling the individual to make the team better. So Monday to Friday, you train for yourself. And because you make yourself better, more clarity, faster, stronger, eat the right food, sleep, blah, blah, blah. You make the team stronger at the weekend. And I'm really huge on that. Um, and it's, it's this you versus yourself model that I'm massive in. It's you versus you every day. Don't look sideways to compare, only for inspiration. It's what I've been going on as a coaching journey. That's what I've tried to take young players on. But that can be a team, a club. You know, you versus yourself starts with me and you and then makes the team stronger. And then obviously that team stronger, it makes the club stronger. So that you versus yourself model is huge. Um, and, and, and I think that's the easiest way, you know, when you want to talk about whether you're a defensive coach, attacking coach. Well, I think I've been clearly influenced by the clubs I've been at that I've had to be a, a coach that wants the ball. And I'm heavily influenced by, by um, Johan Cruyff in that sense. He's like the lighthouse, if you like. If you want to have a lighthouse to your ideas, then he would be my one. Fantastic. It's an interesting thing you said there about the formations. We have a saying here, it's a style, not a system. So you, you, that fluidity and people being able to, especially at the development of that stage, be able to play in different positions, different areas of the pitch. 
you speak there very positive in terms of the way you look at players, individual approach, but th do you think that too many times, not, not summarising or, or saying anyone in particular, but do you think we look at things as weaknesses over their strengths? And actually, it's their strengths that got them in the door. Why don't we try and make them best they can? And like you said earlier, and like try and hide the deficiencies or how much do we work on those weaknesses mm -hmm. within players? Yeah, every player needs to know why they're there, why they're at the club, why they're a good player, why they're hired. So that comes down to the things they can do. And I think that we can get caught into that trap in football of seeing what a player can't do. The academy manager at Liverpool was massively on me on that. Mick, what can the player do? And always understand that, that players change. So you can't have a fixed mindset on players. Or players improve over time or they grow or they get better. So always be can-do. I think sometimes in a club, we're so close to players that we, we, we're looking at the things why they might not make it. That they're clear, but why will they make it and then round things off? It's simple. Like with a young striker, you'll watch all the goals that he scores, the type of goals he scores. So he's got to practice that because he's, if he's a striker at a, a, an academy and he's got 20 goals in a season, he's got them all with his right foot going across the goalkeeper. It would be crazy not to keep practicing that because that is what's got him in the building. Okay, now if he adds five goals with his left foot and five goals with his head, now he's a 30 goal striker. So basically you say, right, what type of goals do you score and what type of chances or goals are you not scoring that we can add to? So even, so his super strength is not right foot shooting across the goal. His super strength is scoring goals. So how can we make your, your super strength more varied, um, more layers to it? And then you get the kid to buy in. And I think people always buy in from a moment of positivity. And in our game, it's difficult because you're always receiving feedback. So when they come in for a parent's review, it's always like he's done well at that, but he needs to do this, this and this. Parents go in with the negatives in their mind rather than the positives. Yeah. And I think we've got to realise that, you know, we can be really honest with parents. And I think that's where academies can get better. Like I, I was always someone that was being, being parent friendly because I said hello to parents. Like that was it. But I always feel that like parents can accept honesty. And as I've become a parent and we do school reviews, you don't want to know how well the class does at maths. You just want to know if your kid's happy. If he's struggling, how can you help him? And 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 what areas do you think that he, he's excelling in? And and I think that's the same as a parent coming into an academy. I just think we build it up as clubs. And I think the feedback is really important to getting everyone buying in. But I do think a kid's got to know why he's been recruited for an academy, what makes him different to the boy that didn't come in and, and how you're trying to use that to, to make him a better and stronger player. For me, a lot of the young players that I've seen, their outstanding attribute at 10, 11, 12 is their outstanding attribute playing for England in the European final. It's still there. Yeah. So it's, it's, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. 100% agree. And there might be little tweaks you make like on them deficiencies, but you keep adding to the, the super strength, as you said. You spoke there a lot about the individual programs, Mick, and I know you and back in, you know, when we've worked together, it's all about the individual. What do they need to work on? Talk a little bit about how that looks like for you in practice. So on a weekly basis, how do you ensure that every player gets their individual outcomes? Is it clinics? Is it the session design? Is it a combination, etc.? Uh, there's lots of things really mate it started when I was at Liverpool under 23s and I had boys going back to the A-teams or playing in UA for youth league under 19s going up to the first team going on loan and I thought wow we've got such a Pandora's box here of open doors of players going everywhere and they've got a lot of thoughts in their minds about they're so close but so far away um, I can't do this on my own so the goalie coach he's got three or four and I've got 
an assistant, right? I need him to take three or four. I'll take three or four. And then you've got an analyst. Can we make him a coach as well? So between us, we all took four, five, six players. We at the club six days a week, you'd have two meals, breakfast and lunch, lunch or dinner. So take you've only got six players. So half your meals have of a player or walk out of a player. And then it's you versus yourself. Who are you? Where are you now? Where are you going? What do you want to be? Okay, that's your self-awareness. The next point is self-management. What are you doing about it every day? What's your daily rituals? And them two things are very personal, your self-awareness and your self-management. Number three is your awareness of others. How do you get this lovely identity that you want to become or you're on the road to becoming? How do you get that inside a working team? How do you get that to me and you playing in midfield together, Ross? We've got a lovely understanding. You go to the first team. Another boy comes in your play. How do I work with you? So the awareness of others. Who am I serving? Who's serving me? So that one's quite social. And then number four is quite social as well. Is your relationship management. Would your teammates pick you? What do the staff think about you around the building? What's your social media like? What are you like with talking? What are you like as a teammate? I think them four things, your self-awareness, self-management, awareness of others, relationship management, I'll just give you clarity of the word taking ownership. We say to young players all the time, take ownership, take ownership. So to do that, I realised at Liverpool 23s, I needed four of us to do it. And in, so I would take the forwards, another coach midfielders, another one defenders. You can do unit meetings, you can do individual meetings. We can go out and play 11 v 11, but rather than all the coaches watching the same three or four players, you watch the players in your unit. And when they go and get a drink, you might say to me and you as two midfielders, or oh, Ross mix out playing you here, he's made more passes, or he's playing forward more than you. Or it might be, oh, Ross, come on, we've been working on you, receiving on your back foot and switch in play come on how many times can you do it so it's all about fueling the individual it comes from that chat there that i was i was saying about ownership it comes about you versus yourself every single day can we give you the perfect training week something you need to work on something you love the stuff that you do outside the club your sleep your diet your nutrition so when you get in that changing room on a saturday or whenever it is the game's unpredictable but you you arrive in the changing room in a great place I picked that model up and took that into first team level at Sao Paulo and now into Rangers as well. Our manager oversees, like I did at Liverpool 23s, I stand back and oversee the whole pie. You know, I can jump in anywhere and that's what Stephen can do here. But I oversee the attacking players, Gary McAllister, the midfielders, Tom Coleshaw, the defenders and Colin Stewart, the goalkeeper, sports science, analysis, they're all around it. But then it's everything's bespoke, mate. So... You're working on saying every day. Once you have the first conversation, it's, you're not starting again. The first conversation, it just goes on and on and on and upwards. And you get to know the players really well. You get to know when they're up and down just by how they walk in the building in the morning. And again, it comes back to feeling and relationships. For me, when it comes to coaching, it's all about how someone feels about the game and the relationship they have with the people in the team and around it that makes them the best version of themselves or something less. And so I, that's why I say the, the best coaching is done off the pitch in an informal conversation. I'm someone who, who doesn't do formal uh, very well because I don't like formal because I think, I think I love the, you know, short, regular, informal conversations. And then each coach in their unit, they can, when this schedule comes out, they can go in it and say, right, I'm going to do a unit meeting there with my back four on something that I've seen in our team or something I've seen in the Premier League. I like to watch the goals that we score and the goals that are scored in the Premier League with the forwards. Every week, it's a 10-minute thing. We sit and watch it and we just talk. And in that room, you've got someone like Jermaine Defoe. And he does the coaching for you because Jermaine's elite in that model. Look at the way he took his touch there. or Look at the way he controlled his shoulders. 
And then the thing that I love about it, Ross is as you bring young players into it, that becomes their norm. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want this to be the norm. I don't just want this to be the norm at my club. I want this to be the norm for every young player across the academy system that the, the, the coaching ratios are one to six, one to seven, one to eight maximum. Because each kid, if he comes in from school and he's an under 12, that first thing of the welfare check, how are you, how was school, or knowing his favourite team, or the name of his dog, or, or knowing his mum and dad's name, is, I think them things are so important. Yeah. And where other people think 433 and 442 is important, I think that's just the entry level. That's just the entry to get the job that you've got. The other layers of managing people is where you find the, the, the cream from the rest, I think, in coaching. Brilliant, Mick. Loads of info in there. Thank you very much. Talking a little bit about the coaching then on the grass, Mick, what's your view around stepping in? How often, this is going to be dependent on who you're coaching, of course, but the idea of problem solving, the idea of stepping in, where's your balance there? How do you see that along, along that, on that continuum? Well, yeah, I think when you're at first team level, or the older you get, it's more about collaborating because they're very talented. So they've got to this level, they're international player, they're a millionaire, they're very talented. It's important that you, you see their view and you collaborate with them. And you're saying to them, this is how you fit into this. And the same with younger players, that younger players are more around standards and fundamentals. For me, it's really important the ball rolls because um, young people now are not doing any football outside the train that we have. And just because we wear a coaching jacket doesn't mean we have to coach all the time. And, you know, with Premier League academies and the EPPs now and academy managers coming out and head of coaching coming out, it's like, are they coming out to watch the kids or watch the coach? It's important that they're coming out to watch the kids and the kids are allowed to play. If it's an individual thing, pull the individual out. It's a fundamental thing for the players. Then, then obviously you would stop and put things in. But 30 seconds here and there, I think you've got to let the ball roll. Yeah. And I think the game gives you a lot, Ross, that, that people don't realise. Just letting the ball roll gives you a lot. I look at a lot of academy practices and I never see kids breathing. So I never see technique under fatigue. I never see technique tested because, and it's great that sports science has become a, a big part of our game, but you know, the four top, you know, we do four, three minute blocks. Like well, the game don't allow you to do that. So when you just play 15, 16 minutes out with 12 year olds and see them having to recover and breathe in so to see where their breaking point is or to see where they're stressed, can they receive it the same then? Can they play under pressure then? You know, if it's just a three, four minute blocks, of course they can. And so, um, for me, when I played, I liked a lot of freedom to go and play. So within some real guidelines that you have to put in place, once you get it there, I think the ball should roll quite a lot. And I think you have to, when you're planning the session, the best coaches that I've met are able to see it within the players' eyes. So they know it's very specific, the players, and they know it's for them because they're the conversations you've had before and around the session. But then when you're out there, you can almost see, you'd want to play in it. I never coach anything I wouldn't want to play in. So even if you're doing defending and it's a bit, it's a bit boring for me because I was a winger, I would say defending's not boring for defenders, of course, but you have to put it across in a way that, is, it, that everyone can, can enjoy it. And I think, so for me, ball rolling is massive. The younger the kids, the more the ball's got to roll, in, in my opinion, because they're not doing it outside. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think it comes back to, again, the, the ball and the boy the boy in the game, and then the boy in the coaches, boy in the club, they're the four things. The boy in the ball is relationship with him and the ball and him and the game. So there should be more balls than players. Every club I've been at, right, we've got 20 players, but I want 40 balls and I want four coaches. And you can see like 
I went back to Liverpool after Sao Paulo and the academy manager's going, well, you've put my bill up a little bit here. And I was like, all right, if the coach really wants to get on, then he'd come in on an additional night as a volunteer because he wants to get on because that's what I did. So I want that energy as well. Um, and I just think that flow, a flow in a session is so important, Ross. And sometimes when you're a coach, you know you've got it wrong because the flow's not right. And that's you. I always say about young kids, they get out of mum and dad's car and they run to the pitch because you've set it up. And if after 10 minutes, they've not got that energy, then that's your fault. So what did we do? And was at Chelsea, we had the little entrance bit where they had to do the skill circuit before they could join the game. And then the famous 2v2 box game, which I talk about a lot, that was me and you in between them two mini goals, mate. And it was Mason Mount, he Declan Rice, and it was Tammy and Dom and all them kids playing 2v2 with me and you in between the mini goals. And then more kids would arrive and then it would be go on, go off. We tried to keep that passion from when they got out of mum and dad's car to run to our pitch. We try to keep it there for the hour and a half. If after 20 minutes it's not there, that's the adults. 100%, mate. Yeah, no, I think some great points there, mate. Um, you spoke about your box game there. Could you, depending on the day of the week, this will change, but could you take the listeners through a training session that has that flow that you just said, the training session that you like to take, whether you branch off into units, how you'd structure it? What does it look like on, a, on one of the working days where you are now? Okay, like today, we had uh, 18. We had three or four kids come across from our B team. Um, because we had some players away on internationals. So we went out, two groups of nine, some technique, technique that we would call like hard drive techniques that are, are very important to the way that we play, twisty, turning, the ability to outplay, um, a little bit of combination play, which I call relationship work. So no defenders there, but balls coming in from different angles, a little bit of combination play. So the first 15, 20 minutes might be the hard drive techniques can be opposed or unopposed. And then it will be some sort of game scenario. So today ours was 3v2 from wide areas. Um, and we stayed on that 15, 20 minutes. And then we played 9v9, uh, no rules, but good size pitch offside rule, but no any nothing, no special rules. I don't ever have rules on two touch. I hate that sort of thing because I think that influences decisions. It doesn't help a player to get a decision. It just tells you after two. And then sometimes that can force a bad decision because he should have traveled with the ball there. So uh, we just played 9v9 on quite a big area uh, to let them open their legs. And then after that, the boys go off with their unit coaches and they go off and do some something very specific. So centre-backs went off today and was dealing with some direct play because we believe that's what we're going to face in the next couple of games. Um, and the wide players and forwards went and worked on some finishing close around the box. And... So every day works like that. Where are we in the week? What's to come? And how can we influence things? So there's, there's, there's some player qualities to play in our style. So three things. There's player qualities to play in our style. There's team qualities, i.e. Uh, tactical staff or grit or organisation or fitness, whatever the team qualities you want, the ability to keep possession, whatever. And the last one's the what ifs. What if we go down to 10 men? What if we're playing against the back five and not a back four? What if they're playing two up front? What if they go direct? What if they're a team that get the ball wide and hit lots of crosses? So them three things are going on every single day. Player qualities, team qualities, what ifs. And they're, in the, they're the cornerstones of every session. And it, I think it's important. Like We do what we call microwave warm-ups here at Rangers. So we do like two or three-minute warm-ups. And then they go with their unit coaches on certain days and do techniques that are specific to them. So defenders might do foot patterns, midfielders might do receiving skills, and forwards might do different little movements on mannequins. So even the warm-up can be specific. 
we've had to build to that level. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say to a coach with less experience to jump straight to that level, but build towards it. Why does everyone warm up the same, for example? Because they're not all going to do the same, even if it's a 6v6 game. The defenders are going to need different qualities to the attackers. So allow them to go away and, and work on them. And so every day here in the sessions, I think like, this is the most important time in my life. Every day, 11 o'clock, I absolutely love it. You can tell like the, it's my job to plan it for the group. And um, we have like a private app for our players where we put a lot of stuff on there for them, little videos, little clips, selective reading. And that all, again, buys into it because... Trainings in our schedule now, we play every three days because of Europe till Christmas, basically, only break for international break. So the time to train your main players is off the pitch, not on it. So then you fall back to them relationships, Ross. So again, it comes back to relationship and feeling. Yeah. And that's where a lot of coaches kind of don't perceive that stuff as off the pitch as important. But I think as you've highlighted it, it essentially is. Mick, we're just going to move on to some stuff around management style for you and, and different things you've picked up. Just before I do, I just want to say um, a thank you again to our sponsors, Ripped. Um, please head over to www.ripped.app and use the, the code locker room to get your two-month free trial. Um, as we mentioned, thank you very much for the sponsorship and continued sponsorship from Ripped. Um, they're getting some good success now with a lot of our listeners. So, Mick, just from a management perspective, you've played, you know, you've, you've worked under lots of different managers, academy managers, first-team managers. What sort of things have you really took from different personnel? What have you really took from different people that said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that my own? Excuse me. Make that my own or I'm going to use that? I'm really going to use that from different people. I think some people have really good personal skills and humility and time for people. And it's generally warm. You know what I mean? It's genuinely warm. Like I work with Gary McAllister here. And when Gary Callister walks in the room, the way he addresses everybody in the room and how warm he is, that's a unique skill that, that he has. And it, it's a, he has such class in the way he is when he goes in a room. Do you know what I mean? And so you, you see different things from people. I think passion is really important. I think optimism is, is infectious as well. Same as when people are pessimistic or negative, that's infectious in football clubs. So I think optimistic is really, really important. And that's not easy at times in the season. It's something that you try to have. And I always try and make it about the players, not about myself not too tactical you have to break the players don't need to know tactics like me and you they don't need to know it like a coach they need to know it in the simplest form so i try not to have use any coaching jargon and i've not been on any of the fa courses in a number of years um because of you know I've, I've passed my courses so when i hear things about interventions and you know and stuff like that then words to me they weren't in the coaching vocabulary back then and I certainly wouldn't use them words with players of any age I really like to use real simple simple terms and so it, it's, it's it's important that the I think if people are around you every day again it comes back to are you sincere in your relationships and how do they feel coming into the building they must feel comfortable they must feel like they can be themselves any young player that was saying always taught when trialists come in that you made a trialist, you went out of your way to make a trialist feel comfortable to, to see the best version of him. And it doesn't matter if you've paid £10 million for a player and he comes into your club, how can you get him playing like the player he was somewhere else? So is talent transferable? So you need to know about why he was so comfortable there, what it was the coaches were saying to him and how does that fit with what we're doing? How can you make him? So I think being sincere in your relationships is really important. And I think... It's, you can't say you can't say you're like that. People have to see it every day. It's other people that need to say that you're sincere with your relationships. It's other people that need to say you're optimistic. 
it's other people that need to say you're creative because creative to me is really important ross i've always said it to myself be creative be a bit different be a risk taker and i think if you're like that every day when it becomes the big moment and you've got to make a big decision of making a sub or a tactical tweak you'll do it because that's how you've lived every day so do you know what I mean? so it's like i say it to myself at the start of the season you have to be really honest whether people like it or not really honest because that's what you're demanded of if you're not honest you're not doing your job in a big football club you know when it comes to a big decision if you're not honest with people then you'll end up hurting them in the long run or hurting the club so you've got to be sincere in your relationship you have to be really optimistic and you have to be creative you have to be willing to take a risk because i think that then becomes what you are every day um, and people see it and and because when you're a coach and you stand in the dressing room or you stand out on the training pitch and you're setting a tactics for a big game, you need them to believe in it and run with it. Yeah. And so you have to be a good salesperson in that moment. But it's got to be authentic. And I think there's no point. I would. It's hard. There's no point me saying they're the things. I'd rather other people say it because they see it off you every day. Do you know yeah, what I mean? For sure. How important is it that that consistency comes through regardless of at your level now, win, lose, draw, bad result? That's important to message from the players and other staff as well. Yeah, because there's a certain amount of, if you want your players to be composed, but we're all going to have bad results in the season. We all play enough games to get them. Here at Rangers, we played 60 games. Last year, we played 56 games. We lost three. The three games, not to say out of three tournaments, Ross. We won a league unbeaten. But we lost three games in 56 and only won one trophy. That was very hard to take at the end of the season. Yeah. If you go on such a long run like we did and then lose a game, I think the composure is actually the confidence in that the team will go and win the next game. You've got to be thinking about tomorrow. If in that moment you start shouting and throwing cups around and stuff like that, I just think they go, well, what about the last 30 games that we've done well for you? So I think you've got to understand that people are sincere and they're doing their best. But today was just a bad game. And I think how you manage situations. I have to say, Stephen Gerrard, in my opinion, is outstanding at that in terms of how he's able to summarise a moment. And that's probably because in his career, he's been through lots of highs and lows. I think the biggest players, we just think from the outside, everything was a high. The biggest players that I've met have had some of the lowest lows ever. And, you know, Stephen's given me personal advice on that and how to manage that as well in my own coaching that I've been thankful for. And I think you're right. I think it's consistency. Now, there's a time where you've got to be strong. So if it's something where it's a standard or a behaviour you're not happy with, yeah. then I think, but we've got to be very careful calling effort into question. And we seem to be in football very quick effort. Or, you know, we're not trying hard enough. We're not working hard enough. I, I think very rarely is that the issue. Yeah. Uh, and I think we have to be very good at what is a good performance. A good performance is not 70% possession playing in the other team's half winning 3-0. A good performance might be grinding to a 1-0 or grinding to get a draw against a really strong opponent on a day where you may be not playing well. I think it's important that you give clarity to the players on, on what a good performance is. And going back to the individual, what talent is. So you've got a 14-year-old who's extremely talented in terms of technically talented. But is he talented physically? Is he talented in terms of his, his work ethic, in terms of being a good teammate? I think we have to define what talent is and, again, define what a good performance is just to make sure there's clarity. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mick, I've heard you speak before on a previous podcast. You spoke about Stephen Gerrard, how good he is at delegating, putting his trust in to you in particular for your career and especially using Sao Paulo. You touched upon it. How important is that, do you think, from a manager perspective, putting trust in the staff, giving them responsibility, in terms of creating that culture and that environment? 
Well, it's a management team now. I believe that massively. I don't think one person does it. I think the game's become too big. The squad's too diverse. We play more games now than ever before. And so you need a staff, you know, like we had a COVID situation last week where eight members of staff were off and our academy staff stepped up and um, they were fantastic. And when they were stepping up, we were saying to them, come in and use your voice and bring personality. I think what I've noticed is, is that in a management team where you get everybody involved, then people are willing to take responsibility. Now, responsibility becomes, you know, you can be judged on that and you're given responsibility at the time that you're doing well, ain't you? Or that you're showing potential. If you if you fail, then maybe you don't get the same dele um, task delegated to you. But for me, there's a couple of things. Like you have some staff that are there and work for the players and you have other staff that are able to push standards and improve players because of their personality. And I always want the second one. I don't want staff here that are just here um, as a spectator and allowing players just working for the players. I want members of staff who can, can straighten a player up and talk about standards and try to improve the player. And so I think as a manager now, you have to delegate. It's smart, but it's smart to do that. It's the right thing to do because you've got such a varied squad. And when you name a team, you leave a lot of players out. You're not the best person to speak to them players now. You know, you need other members of staff. And again, you need members of staff, different ages, different experiences, maybe different uh, backgrounds culturally and diversity, because that's what your squad looks like. And so I think that's what the smart coaches are doing now. You need someone in your, in your management team that speaks second language as well. All these things that make... So being a good coach yourself is one thing being a good manager is a complete different job in in total and what type of manager do you want to be do you want to be a tactician that's on the pitch every day do you want to be a manager who's a leader of upwards leader outwards with a media leader down to the academy in terms of strategic what type of manager are you and then what do you want around you so for me personally i'm a field coach so i would need people around me that supplement that Stephen wants to be a manager in terms of the figurehead that's on the pitch every day but he's willing to delegate a lot of the coaching to me just because my experience and experience is different. Between the two of us and Gary and Tom, bringing all that together, that's the, that's the perfect thing. You bring everyone together to make a strong management team rather than I am the manager and you are the coach. And I've been very fortunate that, uh, and I don't know if I can be an assistant again after this experience. I think it will be difficult for me to find someone who delegates as much and gives me as much responsibility as Stephen does. So um, when he's bored of me or sick of me, mate, I'll try to be a manager myself, I think. Well, you answered the, the next question about the sort of manager you'll be. So you see yourself still taking charge of team sessions. That's your bread and butter. You don't want to delegate that responsibility, you don't think. No, no, I, I, I want to delegate it within two or three other coaches in terms of unit coaches, but I don't, I don't want to step away from the pitch because I think that that's my passion, 11 o'clock every day. Um, I know if you're a manager and speaking to some friends that have gone into management, it's hard to put pen to paper because you might get called in by a board member or the physio might come in and yeah. player might come and see you in the morning. So I realise it's going to be tougher. Um, I had a little bit of experience with that with Liverpool under 23s. And so therefore, one of my assistants always took the hard drive moment, the first 15, 20 minutes. It just allowed me to breathe. And then I came in with the bits that I thought was important. But I like working with uh, small units. So I'll always have an influence on the pitch, whether it's working with the forwards or the midfielders. And I think that's important. And as again, it's a management team. And you don't always get the choice. If you're going to be a first-time manager and you go into, say, League One, 
you're not always going to be able to recruit your ideal members of staff that you would, you know, you've worked with at different clubs because they might be in a really good job or live in another side of the country where financially it's not viable. So for me, it's more what do you want from the specific roles and not who do you want, yeah. you know, so, and that's really important. But I've been planning and building for that the last seven, eight, nine years since I've been a 23s coach to be a manager one day. Um, but I'm not in a rush. You know, I'm not, I'm not that 21-year-old now who wants to knock down every wall. I've sort of overcome that, that heartbreak of not making it, if you like. But, but it's, still, it's still a dream. And it's still a dream to go and manage outside the UK, not in the UK as well. Yeah, very interesting, Mick. I'm sure the listeners will be uh, watching your career very closely. This is something new. Uh, we just brought it in for you. It might stick, depending on how well it goes to finish off. A little quick fire round. You can uh, you can take time to answer it. Answer it how you see fit, mate. If it's short, no problem. We've got six questions. So just to finish off, if you don't mind. Um, number one, who's been the biggest influencers of your career so far? There's been loads, mate, but I would say players and environment. The environment at Chelsea there with the young players that we had. The players showed me another level that I needed to get to. Um, I've had different people around me that give me advice no one I felt was a real strong mentor I've been, I've been I'm quite stubborn in many ways and I wanted to go my own route but some of the young players I've been exposed to and what they've gone on to do is given me a lot of confidence in the work that we were doing to keep doing it and obviously it's they've shown me a higher level um, and so they've had a massive influence on me brilliant um, hard one now different stages of his career I'm sure best player you've ever worked with Wow, you know, there's been loads. Like, you, you would have worked with many of the same as me. Like, when you look at Declan and look at Mason Mount and, and players like that, Ruben Loftus-Cheek was fantastic. Jeremy Boga was at 14, was, was, was fantastic. And then I went across to Brazil and worked with some brilliant players there. I'm going to buck out a little bit on this one. I was lucky enough, I've lucky enough to uh, coach Steven Gerrard a couple of times and Coutinho and Luis Suarez when I was at Liverpool. And if you're talking about levels, then Steven... Um, but if you're talking about players I've enjoyed coaching, I really enjoyed working with Mason Mount. He was just a lovely kid, big smile on his face, like a Duracell bunny when he comes to training. And um, it's been really lovely to see him and Trent and Declan Rice go on their journeys, Tammy Abraham, boys like that, because I see them when they were young, at seven. Yeah. And so it, I'm biased because I've, I've, I've literally tried to live their journey. journey. Yeah, sure. for Kao Tomori as well when he went to AC Milan. So there's too many, to be fair. I'd be doing this. this I'm, I'm hoping that the best player is yet to come, if that makes sense, that's in the for future. Sure. For sure, Mick. Um, what's your dream job? Um, I don't know. Like, I've, I, like uh, I think Ajax, to be the manager of Ajax is a, is a fantastic job because you've got to be a good development coach and Ajax is a club that plays in a very certain style of play. So you're almost getting rubber stamped that you're a good developer of young players yeah. and you're a fantastic football coach. So I think that's a lovely one. So And because I want to work abroad, clubs like Juventus, AC Milan and things like that, like dream clubs, ain't they, that you go and work for. But um, I think less badges, more people is probably your dream job. And I'd like to go on a journey with the staff I'm working with now to one of them clubs, albeit I'm already at a very, very good one. Of course. Um, biggest achievement so far? Uh, I think last year was a big achievement. We went unbeaten in the league in 38 games. That takes a lot of consistency because, you know, in any league, you, you can be a very strong team, but a bounce of the ball, a referee decision, you know, over 10 months and 38 games to go unbeaten. 
We've won the last 21 home games. We've won, lost one in 42 league games. So to go a whole season of 56 games and only lose three was a big achievement. So I think personal achievement, if I'm looking at another one, was going to Brazil and, and actually having the bravery to do it um, and learn the second language is a big personal achievement. Uh, that's probably linked to your next question about my biggest disappointment, which was, again, resigning from Brazil. It's led me to where I am today, but I put so much time and effort and so did my family into me going that I wish I would have just took a deep breath and not resigned at the time because I realised that first team football is not academy football now and there's not always such a set long-term project and you're not always going to be able to keep your best players. You know, that you do need to sell players from time to time and I think it was my first experience and I could have handled it a bit better. I still think I might have come to the same thing, but it is a regret because I love the time there. My family did. Um, and again, just going back to the biggest achievements, mate, just elaborate. I know I go on and on and on. I can talk for England, Ross, but the, my biggest achievement is when you, you're watching some players that you worked with playing with freedom at first team level, like players that you're working with now or players you worked with in the past. That's it because that's what you were asking them kids to do when they were 10, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, smile, express yourself, yeah. you know, show the world your talent. And then when you see them doing it at the top level, you're like, wow, you, you, that's fulfilling for me. I'm not achieved that. Them players have achieved that. But that's what I wanted for them. Do you know what I mean? So that's yeah. a big achievement. Brilliant, mate. And last one from me, best piece of advice you would give to coaches listening at all different levels? Just, just knock down every boundary. You know, be different. If you're the under 14s coach at Chelsea, you've got to feel that you can be the under 14s coach at Barcelona. So that's a great responsibility every day to keep pushing on and developing. Um, make it about the game. Make it about players. Go on a you versus yourself journey. You, you versus yourself every day. Your pathway is unique. Push that in the players and the other coaches that are around you as well. And that will build really strong relationships and feeling. And, and I think that's key, you know, for don't get bogged down with practices. So, I mean, the game gives you a lot. Don't get bogged down with practices. Get bogged down with relationships and making people feel good about themselves and giving them clarity on how they can get better. And if you do that every day, you got yourself, you won't go backwards. So people have got different ceilings and doors will open at different times. So you need that consistency, that almost mental stamina, you know, that you need to keep going and keep going when maybe it feels like doors are not opening. But ultimately, you won't go backwards if you invest in yourself every day. Brilliant. Mick, well, listen, you was a big influence on, on my early stages of career. I think the podcast has been excellent. Thank you very much for coming on. And uh, it's, been, it's been brilliant, mate. Top man, Ross. Thank you, mate. Cheers, Mick.